Uh, it's my joy to be able to come to you this morning and to open the Word of God. It's been a while uh, since I've had the opportunity to do so. Um, as many of you probably know, I've been in the process of uh, working towards the final degree. Um, and so in doing that as an educator, uh, it has taken a lot of time. Um, it has also been, uh, it has kept me from being able to come and to open the word with you and to spend some time that way. Um, so uh, I am overjoyed at the fact that I have the opportunity to be able to do that. My assignment for today is to look at Psalm 6, and uh, in case you were wondering if we were going to have a Father's Day message today, uh, we have the practice here of just kind of moving along in God's Word and allowing it to speak. Now, there are occasions in which we do have maybe a, a Christmas, more of a Christmas message or an Easter message, but um, we try to just kind of keep moving along, and I know that God uses his word in our lives, regardless of the day that it is, uh, to be able to work in us. And so this morning, uh, as we look at Psalm 6, um, you may look at it as a passage that perhaps seems uh, one that you might read through quickly if you were doing your Bible reading, uh, one that you may say, well, wow, poor David. That was a, that's a difficult situation right there, and we may kind of overlook it, but um, as I spent some time going through it, I can tell you this, that God used it mightily in my own life, and so um, it has been good to be able to study this passage and now to bring to you uh, some of the things that God has, has shown me from this passage. Um, so with that, I'd like to ask that you would stand right now with me, and we're going to read together um, from Psalm chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. It says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled my soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, as we come before you this morning, we have a passage here that is filled with deep emotion, a passage that speaks to us today because we walk through these kinds of things as your children. And Father, sometimes we may be ignorant of the things that we will understand from this passage. 
So we ask that you would open our eyes today, that you would allow for us to see what is in this passage, that we might uh, be able to then grow from it, to bring you praise. Lord, I pray that uh, you would allow me to be an effective mouthpiece for you this morning. I pray that our hearts would be open to receive what you have for us now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, just as I was kind of uh, going through this passage, one of the things that I thought about was that uh, it's important for us uh, to make sure that we understand a few things first before we can actually jump into this passage this morning. And so what I would like to do is to set up this psalm a little bit so that you have maximum opportunity uh, to allow this psalm and others like it to become a staple as you feed in God's Word. Um, the title and the subscript of this passage reminds us how this psalm was intended to be used um, in, a, in a time of worship. And so as we look at the collection of the psalms, what happened was that they were used as a form of worship that people were supposed to use. And so you can see in the title, it's pretty much straight to the point. And we'll get to the meat of that text shortly. But I mean, as it says there um, at the beginning, though, it says, you know, oh, Lord, deliver me. And it's pretty straightforward, right? Now, the title subscript says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminath. And this tells us that it was to be used in worship. So the music director was to use stringed instruments. Okay, And by the way, we use stringed instruments here, right? Including our piano, which is a stringed instrument. Okay, And the phrase, according to the Sheminath, is unclear to us, but most scholars believe that it has something to do with the style of music. Uh, the only reference that we have in Scripture comes from 1 Chronicles 15.21. And this is when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant to rest in Jerusalem. And at that point, um, you may recall this, that David commanded the music to be played loudly on that day. And it says in that passage there that he chose six men that were to lead with lyres according to the Sheminath. That's what it says. And then later in verse 28, it says, so all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. Now just kind of imagine that for a moment, because you know what you're basically seeing is, remember that this was a joyful moment as David is returning the Ark, and so he chooses these six men that he says, you're going to lead with liars, you're going to be in front of everybody, and you are to make loud music on there. I don't know what else to make of it, uh, but that is what it was about there, and that's the only kind of hint that we have here. Um, and I'm going to just leave it alone. Since the Lord chose not to make it clear to us in Scripture any more about this, we'll just leave it at that. But that's how it was to be used, how it was to be played um, and there's all sorts of ideas about it, um, so we'll kind of leave it there. Now, moving into the text for this morning, we also need to consider the genre within the genre this morning. 
So many of you are probably aware already that the book of Psalms is classified as wisdom literature, right? Uh, you know that. And that's a type of genre within the Bible. But within the book of Psalms, there is a genre that this falls under, and it's called a psalm of lament. And you will be familiar with this term because, of course, there is an entire book in the Bible um, that is devoted to this, right? It's the book of Lamentations. And um, it was, the, you know, one of these books that was written by, uh, we believe that it was written by Jeremiah, um, and traditionally, he's the prophet that um, was known as the weeping prophet, right? And so this designation was given to him because he asked that his eyes might be made a fountain of tears for the death of his people. It doesn't sound very exciting, does it? But he was the prophet that was given this vision of what was going to happen. And he asked God that his eyes might be made a fountain of tears to weep for the death of his people. And if you read through Lamentations, you will see that he repeats over and over, his eyes are filled with tears. And so Lamentations and the Lament Psalms alike are focused on being sorrowful about something, right? And in particular, it's over the sin that is causing big, big problems within people's souls. It changes their outlook. Now, you may be surprised to learn that 67 out of the 150 psalms are categorized as lament psalms. Think about that for a moment. Because this is much of what David wrote. David wrote psalms of lament. Now, we typically don't think of it that way when we think about the psalms. We tend to think of maybe all the joyful things that are supposed to be happening, um, and some of the psalms like that, and we tend to kind of see some of those other psalms where maybe there's this lament that is going on, and we kind of see those as maybe few and in between, but 67 out of the 150, that's quite a few. The lament psalms genre makes up more than one-third of the psalms, and I think it is safe to say that the tone of the book of Psalms is in large part one of sorrow, sorrow over sin and calling out to God for deliverance from one thing or another. Just take that in for a moment as we will continue to work our way through the book of Psalms this summer, that in large part, it is one about sorrow over sin and calling out to God for deliverance. We can see from the title subscripts that the Psalms of Lament are songs and poems in which the psalmist cries out to God in times of deep distress and despair. In Psalms of Lament, he's, the psalmist is asking God for intervention to deliver him from suffering, from sorrow, from great loss, failures, and from enemies. And these petitions often give way, though, to expressions of trust in God, to act in the psalmist's favor which can lead to hope and joy. And so I just want you to consider this, that as we take a look at this, that there is a movement that happens through these psalms. And it's intentional as David writes these out or as other psalmists write these out. Um, so one more thing that I'll share with you about this is that 
these psalms of lament. Um, they're a little bit interesting because of the fact that they are, some of them are individual. They're written so that an individual would, would proclaim these, this psalm. And so it was the, your personal praise that you would give to God through it. And some of them were communal, meaning that this was for the entire body that came together to worship and to praise God. And they would together proclaim this psalm of lament. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the basic structure for the psalms of lament. Um, first, there's this invocation or address to God that you will see in there. And as you can see up there, it's, you know, really the psalmist is invoking God's presence or attention to the plea that they are about to make. They're calling on God. It's intentional. Second comes the lamentation or description of the complaint. And in this section, the psalmist defines the distress or describes the crisis that serves as his reason for his cry to God. The prayer then is aimed at getting relief from God, as well as venting the emotion that the psalmist is feeling at the time. I think most of us know this, that as you read through the Psalms, there are times when you can feel the emotion that the psalmist has, in particular David. And that is exactly what we see here. Third is the petition or request for God's help. So the petition would ask God for deliverance usually, right? Just as this, this psalm says, oh God, be my deliverer, right? In the petition section, you see language at this point, such as the words that say, hear, look, listen, pay attention to me. However, it's also worth noting that this is poetry. And so sometimes, as these psalms are written, the poet who is writing these may not always use maybe language that we would think of as in being reverent before God. As we know, poetry can be kind of raw. And sometimes it's a little bit sort of, you know, not buttoned up and proper in theology, perhaps even. And we'll see that this morning. There are some things in it that you kind of go like, what does that mean? Because it, it doesn't seem to really make a whole lot of sense at first, but you have to understand that this is poetry. And so it's a little bit raw sometimes. And then fourth, there is a praise or expression of trust. And in almost all instances, the psalmist will turn at the end to directly praise God. Whereas the first part doesn't really seem like the psalmist is praising God. It seems like the psalmist is sort of, you know, as it says here, he's lamenting, he's complaining, he's, he's throwing these things out to God for help. And then at the end, the psalmist turns and he praises God directly. Now, these psalms were especially appropriate for use in worship for that reason. And it points to David's realization that if he is delivered, as we'll see here, from the trouble that he is in, it will only be because of the Lord. Nothing else can be given that praise. No one else can be given that praise, but only God. 
Now, Psalm 6 is also unique in another way because there are very few psalms like it, okay? Um, there is a second description for Psalm 6 that is going to be our focus for today. Psalm 6 is the first of the penitent psalms, okay? And so in Scripture, um, scholars and those who have studied the Bible, going back to Augustine, they identified certain psalms that were considered to be penitential psalms, okay? And so there are seven penitential psalms that are shown in Scripture that have been identified. Psalm 6 is the first, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, 102, 130, and 143. And in each of these, the author acknowledges or confesses his trespasses before the Lord. There is this repentance that is seen here. And, and the psalmist recognizes his need for God's favor and forgiveness in his life. Now, these are unique psalms, these penitential psalms, because it helps the child of God understand the weight of our sin before our holy God and what it means to have a heart that follows after God's own heart. Oftentimes we hear that phrase that David was a man who, whose heart followed after God's own heart. And you wonder, like, why is that really given to David? That, that it seems like such an interesting thing to say about a man uh, who had committed adultery, who had committed murder, who was responsible for the deaths of many, many people as a warrior. And not, those, those are only a few of his sins. I mean, you may look at his family and you may say, look at the disarray that was there and what he allowed to have happen uh, in his family. And yet, he is considered, as God says, that he has a heart that follows after my heart, God says. Why? See, David wrote these penitential psalms, and he's proclaiming to God, here is my sin. These are psalms that I would tell you that if you are afterwards, when you go home, read through those psalms. Take those seven psalms, read through all of them. If you are a child of God, you will find yourself at some point needing to be able to read through those psalms more often than you think. And that was one of the things that God impressed upon me as I was studying through this. So this morning, I'd like to make sure that I share with you my proposition. And it has to do with the fact that we're looking this morning at what a true believer's life is like. Okay? The proposition is that a true believer has an unbreakable faith in the Lord that praises the Lord in times of sorrow and suffering. Once again, a true believer has an unbreakable faith in the Lord that praises the Lord in times of sorrow and suffering. Now, I, I could tell you this, that I've heard people talk about praising the Lord in times of sorrow and suffering, and I have wrestled with that. Now, I have really kind of 
said to myself at times when I've gone through it, like, how are you supposed to do this? And so I want to invite you to take a look at Psalm 6 with me to see how David does that this morning. You know, I'm praying also that your heart will be dissected as you listen to this this morning. Because what I do know is that there is sin in our lives. We are not perfect people. As followers of Christ, sin is right there in front of us, the temptation of it. And many times, we fall into sin. And when we fall into sin, believe me, that you know, we know this, that our sins are not often just like once and I'm done with it and I walk away from it and I won't do it again. We go back to it. We return to it. I think of in Proverbs how it talks about that, that dog that returns back to its vomit. And you go, how disgusting. But that is us. The children of God at times returning back to their sins. But a true believer has an unbreakable faith in the Lord that praises the Lord even in times of sorrow that come as a result of our sins. If you are truly a child of God, your heart will follow after the heart of God too, just like David's. You will see yourself praising the Lord in the midst of your sorrow and your suffering. However, if you are not a child of God, your heart will not resonate with Psalm 6. I want to be real clear right up front, okay? Your heart will not resonate with this unless the Holy Spirit is calling you to repentance this morning. Now, we're going to uh, take a look right now at our first point, which is that the child of God turns to the Lord when chastened. You know, um, it says there, the first two words that come out of David's mouth, Oh, Lord. I mean, those are the first two words that come out of his mouth. And in fact, what you see here is that um, he repeats this phrase five times in the first four verses. And if this is in the Hebrew, he's saying, Yahweh. And you remember that they didn't even want to say his name. And here David is. He's invoking Yahweh because the situation that he is in is urgent. It's intense. Because when we are going through this chastening where the Lord is saying, you know what, I am bringing on you the consequences of your sin right now. I am pouring this, this discipline on you right now and I'm keeping it there in your life. It is uncomfortable. So, we've been there. We know what that's like. Especially when we kind of are with other people and other people who maybe have been disciplinarians in our lives. But you know what's really interesting is that oftentimes for Christians, it is hard for us to know when the Lord is disciplining us. 
We have become accustomed in this world to being able to just kind of think that maybe it's, you know, someone else's fault for what's happening in my life right now. The circumstances that I'm walking through, you know, I'm not at all responsible. And we are miserable. And we can't seem to shake it. We can't seem to get away from it. Notice David's response to invoke the Lord. In other passages, we see that it says in there that, Lord, examine me. Help me to look at myself, to see what sin there is in my heart. Because those become intense and urgent situations. I uh, have to confess to you that my... uh, My regular daytime job is a ministry at Redwood Christian Schools, and one of the things that I do, well, the primary thing that I do is I work basically with children that are going to receive discipline uh, because they have gone outside the boundaries. And let me tell you something, when you you do this sort of day in, day out, and you're working with children, and we do have a higher standard uh, uh, you know, that is set for our students there than what you would find at a public school, because as a Christian school, there are things that we go, hey, lying is not acceptable to God. Um, being mean to people is not acceptable to God. There are a lot of things that kids need instruction in which is why most parents will say, I'm going to send my child to school because I can't do this all day. And so let me tell you what happens when, yes, I have to give consequences or discipline a student at school, and they want it to be over. They say, Mr. C, please. They come to me, and they call me out. If they want it to end, they're going to come to me. If they don't want it to end, they're going to turn to the people around them and they're going to talk about it with them. And they'll complain about it. And they're going to complain probably about me, most popular person at school. But if they want it to end, they want to be delivered from it, they're going to come to me. Now, we don't have a timeline here that is given to us about David's sin. We don't know anything about what David's sin was. All we know from this passage, though, is that he is feeling this. It it is coming down on him right now. And it's intense. I'll remind you that it tells us, even in the book of Psalms, that chastening is something that happens after a period of time has passed. You know, it says in in Psalm 103, 8, and Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is merciful, he is gracious, he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I mean, the Lord is patient with us, even when we sin. But remember that he does punish unconfessed sin. 
In Exodus 34, 7, the Lord proclaimed this about himself as he passed by Moses. He said, the Lord, speaking of himself, the Lord, he says it twice, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Did you hear that phrase? He forgives. But listen to this next part because this is the part that trips us up. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Confession is needed. And God says, look, guilty is guilty. And if you're my child, he will chasten us, he says. My heart has ached for the last two years as I've seen many, many people that have turned away from the Lord. Um, I've seen the Lord chastening people, and I've counseled with people that I've said, you know, don't go down that road. Please don't. There are many people who have chosen instead to say, you know, I'll allow the Lord to chasten me. But they don't even know that he is chastening them. They're still running. I've asked them to submit to Christ, maybe to biblical counseling, I know that I've done that, to fellowship with the saints. And yet I have seen many people, because of working in, in a ministry, at a Christian school with lots of families, uh, being part of a church, um, and then also having been in this community all my life. I've counseled a lot of people in the last two years that have rejected Christ. They've rejected biblical counsel. They reject the fellowship of the saints. I mean, we know this, that people have not returned to church, right? They've just kind of like, you know, they got used to it. They have turned inwardly. They don't trust anyone to counsel them, in fact. And I've had to work with a lot of students and a lot of adults even that decide to say, I don't want anybody to counsel me. They turn inward and they think, I'll just... Do what I need to do for myself. You do you, and I'll do me. Some have turned to social media. That's where I'll find my help. YouTube. Lots of little places where you can find other things that will help you to try to figure out how you're going to maneuver through the chastening that God has placed on his children. Some turn to vices. 
I know how I'll cope with all of this. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's cannabis. Other drugs that are either legal or illegal. They have turned to sexual forms of gratification, including pornography. And we see the effect of these things in people's lives. It takes them deeper and deeper into sin. And believe me, when the child of God is going in that direction, God is not going to let that child go without chastening. The passage reminds us that we are to turn to the Lord, inquire of the Lord. The child of God does not become angry with God. The child of God does not refuse to pray to God. The child of God does not say, it doesn't work. I give up. It's not what the child of God says. Brothers and sisters, remember this when you are walking through those times. Use it for counsel in the lives of our dear brothers and sisters. You know, the child of God can still praise God by turning to God and pleading with Him while enduring that chastisement that is taking place in their lives. The question becomes, how can the child of God remain faithful during chastening? Because that's a hard thing to do. In fact, the scriptures tell us, don't allow for your heart to become bitter when you go through these things. So here's what we see in this section here. First, the child of God must understand the holiness of the Lord. Yeah. David understood that God was holy. He had witnessed the holiness of God as he tried to recover the ark. Do you remember that story? It's in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. The Philistines had taken the ark, and it was sent back by the Philistines, and they were like, we're done with this. God had inflicted them with all sorts of tumors and problems that they were going through physically. And so they kind of put it on a cart, and they sent it out. And they find it. And they're like, oh, the ark is here. Let's take it back. It's interesting because in this process here where there's, a, there's this idea that, you know, hey, we know how we'll do this. We're going to make a cart that is like all new wood. We're going to get a couple of oxen and we're going to pull this thing, put the ark right on it, and we're taking it right into Jerusalem there. We're going to set it up. In the process of doing this, David ignored, though, the instructions that God had given about how he was to be treated. He is a holy God. The priests are supposed to come and carry this Ark of the Covenant without touching it, putting the poles through it. But instead, David's like, we'll just put it on the cart and we'll just, we'll just take it over. It'll be faster. 
And at one point, the oxen stumble. And as they stumble, the ark starts to slide around. And one man sees what is going on and is to the rescue, places his hand on the ark to steady it, and immediately God strikes him. And he falls dead. Can you imagine? David is all of the rejoicing that was going on, all the singing and the dancing that was happening. And we got the ark back. God is in our presence. It stopped. See, the true child of God understands the holiness of God. He has to come back to that. We have to come back to this. He is a holy God. He is not to be treated like the other gods of this world. You see, the gods of this world, people come to them and leave them. They throw them to the side. They bring them back. They're casual with them. That is not the way our God is to be treated. At that point, when that man fell dead, David stopped. He left it there, moved it over to safe location, left the ark there until he could return it the right way. I think Psalm 6 helps us realize that God was rebuking and disciplining David for his sin, right? I don't know if it was written after that occasion or after another occasion or what it was. We don't know. What we do know, though, is that God is pure and he is right in everything that he does, including the chastening that happens in our lives. David's appeal to God's holiness is that in all of this, he is saying, God, please do not punish me out of anger or in your complete wrath. You see that in that first verse where he says, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And he, he's like, God, you, you could strike me dead if you really become angry with me right now. If you decide to give me all of your wrath, I could die. And so he's appealing and he's understanding God's holiness, that God is separated from sin. He hates sin. God is pure. He is right in all he does. And the child of God needs to understand the holiness of God. As Romans 12.1 states, he tells us this, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what he's calling us to. God says, I am holy. I want you to be holy, separated. God is separated from us 
in that sense that He is holy. Second, the child of God understands the chastening of the Lord. As I read earlier, the Lord will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. Today, it's hard for us to wrap our heads around the idea that the Lord does chasten us. It's not something that we like to talk about openly. We like to talk about grace. Grace is good. But friends, listen to what God has to say about chastening. In Deuteronomy 8.5, and this is something that David would have known, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. This was very real to David. Deuteronomy 8.5 was really just God who repeated this constantly to his people as he led them into the promised land. And he told them, listen, do what is right. I am the one who is bringing you in. And remember that the day that you turn and you become like your enemies out here and you turn against me, then I will rebuke you. I will discipline you. And the true child of God understands that chastening happens from the Lord. Hebrews 12, 4 through 7 says this, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? I mean, temptation comes, right? And we're, we see the temptation that is there and we try to fight it and maybe at times we just give in to it one time. Which leads to another time. And he says here, he says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. In other words, this is what the Lord does. It's not to break you. Instead, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. I mean, what, what a good God he is that he would chasten us. You can rejoice in the fact that he chastens those whom he loves, his own children. Third, the child of God pleads for the mercy of the Lord. Notice the language in verse 2. It says, be gracious to me, O Lord for I am lang languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. He knows that the Lord is merciful. He feels the pain deeply, but again, he appeals to the Lord for mercy in verse 3 when he says, My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? 
You know, in pleading for mercy, he's not trying to manipulate God in any way. He knows what he deserves for his sin. See, that's one of the marks of a true believer. The child of God knows what he deserves for his sin. And it, although it feels weighty because sin does lead to death, and so that discipline may be weighty, just think about it this way, though. Where would we be if God had not intervened mercifully for us? And so the child of God should plead for the Lord's mercy. This may not be your practice to plead for the Lord's mercy on your life, uh, in your situation. If you're kind of examining your life and you're realizing I'm being sinful before the Lord, to plead to God for mercy. I love the fact that as we see this language that is here, that what he is saying is, Lord, you can be gracious. Lord, you can heal me. No, you can. This is who you are. You are a merciful God. So the first point here that we've looked at is that the child of God turns to the Lord when chastened. And the second now is that the child of God confesses to the Lord the painfulness of sin and suffering. Now, David is clearly admitting that the pain that comes from the Lord's chastening in his life, that it hurts. And not only does it hurt that as a result of just, you know, Lord, this is what's happening, but also his foes are looking at this and they're cheering it on. Look at how miserable David is. Look at what's going on. And here's a man who is like, okay, Lord, I get it. I know my sin. Um, but look out there. Look at that. They are rejoicing over what is happening to me. I know that we as human beings have that same feeling at times. When things are not going well in our lives, and we, we often like to compare ourselves with other people. And in fact, we even kind of play a narrative in our own minds at times, thinking that other people are thinking certain things about us. Hurtful things. It's painful. But that's what comes with sin. And that's what suffering is like. In this section, we see that David is burying his soul before the Lord. It starts in verse 3 when he says, My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? It, this, it's heavy. It's intense. We see that desperation floods his soul. David is concerned for his life. If you look at verses 4 and 5 and you listen to the condition of David's soul, he says to God, Turn, O Lord, Yahweh, deliver my life and save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you, 
In Sheol, who will give you praise? In other words, is this the way it ends? Is this the way it's supposed to end, God? God, will I die and be removed from being able to praise you as in the past? Reflect on that feeling. Marinate in that just for a moment. Has your soul been desperate to the point that you wonder if God will allow you to die and never to praise him again in this life? It's a heavy feeling. That's what David is saying here. His soul is just flooded in desperation right now. A couple of years ago, a brother went into the hospital, a believing brother, and it was right after this COVID thing had gotten going, and he shared with me that... uh, while he was in the hospital and was not suffering from COVID-19, that they placed him into a section of the hospital because they didn't know what to do with people at the time. And so they kind of treated everybody as if maybe there's COVID there. They tested him and tested him to see maybe he had the coronavirus. He did not. He was having some other problems. Um, and people were scared, not knowing what to do. The medical profession was just beside themselves, as you recall, and they still are in some ways. But this brother, as I talked to him on the phone, he basically, he said to me, he goes, they're treating me like I have COVID. No one can come see me. Nobody even wants to come into my room when I press the button. Every test has been negative, and so when I push the button, they come with a full-on suit. They open the door, and they peek in, and they go, is everything okay? What, what, what do you need? His statement to me was just like, is this the way I'm going to die? Like, I can't even get, they're not getting anywhere and treating me, trying to figure out what's really wrong with me. Is this the way I'm going to die? He was becoming desperate over his situation. As a believer, I can tell you this, he was doing some soul searching. And he told the Lord the condition of his heart is what he shared with me. Hey, I, this was my opportunity right here. I'm by myself. There's nobody is coming to me. Just me and the Lord. It's a desperate situation. And David, in the midst of his pain and suffering here, finds his soul flooded with desperation. 
But remember this, child of God also knows all that is good about God. He remembers all that is good about God. It's hard sometimes to go through and endure this experience, this painful experience. When a child is chastised by his parents, by the way, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to, to walk through those times with kids. Because as your children are little, you actually have to find a way to help your children remember that you are good. How do you do that with children? What I recall was that as uh, my children were growing up, that uh, whenever there was times where um, we had to bring discipline into their lives, we would hold our kids afterwards. And we would tell them, even on the front end, that this gives us no pleasure. We do this because we know what is good for you. We have lots of good times, but this is, this is one of the hard times right now. And after the discipline was given, we held our children and we reminded them of the fact that we do love them, we care for them. It's all done, it's over. We were trying to build equity a love equity into their lives so that they would remember that as they get older and as we would discipline them in a different way as they got older. Remember that mom and dad love you and that what we choose to do for you is out of goodness. Those of you who are parents, you know all about that. Sometimes I'm struck by the fact that I have run into parents that are like, oh, no, I could never, ever discipline my child. And I kind of think to myself, yeah, and don't start now, because believe me, it's going to just throw your child for a loop now, now that they're already 13, 14 years old. Not unless you can come and you can say, you know what? Like the Lord is. He is good. I was uh, looking at this, and, and I was thinking that in Psalm 6, David recalls the steadfast love of the Lord, the faithfulness of God over the history of this people that he loved, that God was good to them. He had always been worthy of their praise. And in fact, in Psalm 34, verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 107, 1 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. God does not change who he is. You want to know God? Get to know his character, right? His steadfast love endures forever. What a promise. And we see it. David knows this, that God is good. So he laments over the fact that if he dies, he will never get to taste and see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living again. This is, this is where he's like, you know what? This is, this is God's goodness here that I'll never, ever 
get to experience again. Which is why he's crying out to God. David was grieving and mourning over this. And so the next point on here is choosing to confess the painfulness of sin. A child of God needs to choose to confess the painfulness of sin. David was grieving and mourning over his sin and suffering. And if you look at verses 6 and 7, he says, I am weary with my, mo- with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. See, David made a choice that he knew would please God. He lamented over his sin. It pleases God when we do that. He had made a painful choice to start to look at his sin and to understand that there were consequences for it. He lamented over it, over these consequences in his life as well. And he lamented over the fact that his enemies were taunting him. But this is the consequence of sin. We need to remember that our sin is not only costly to us, but we also need to remember that it was costly to our deliverer. One of the things that I thought about as I was looking through this is that there's so many parallels here to what happened to our own deliverer, Jesus Christ. But what happens to him is different than what happens to us and to David. First, what we do know is that God did send his son, his beloved son, Jesus. Tells us in John 3.16 that he loved us that much that he would send his son, Jesus, in our place. It tells us that he was chastened on our behalf, but he had to face the full wrath of God. And the full wrath of God, of course, is something that David has been saying, I don't want that. Because I know what that looks like. But that's what was poured out on Jesus. The Holy One was left to bear the burden of sins when he appealed to the Father for mercy in the garden. He was not given mercy. Instead, he was given death a death sentence. And his enemies, they gladly took the opportunity to inflict pain upon him. They inflicted pain upon his soul and upon his body. He understood that the Lord's Lord's punishment and wrath, yet he did not sin. But instead, he asked the Father for mercy upon every one of us. It was being poured out on him, and he turns and he says, have mercy on them. He had no one that could save him, 
And when he was about to die, he called out from the depths of his soul as David. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was afflicted, he was forsaken for our sake. And even Jesus confessed to the Lord, to his father, the pain of sin and suffering that he was bearing. The sin and the suffering of the whole world that was placed on his shoulders. But in all his suffering, he endured the cross For he remembered that all that is good about his father. That's what allowed him to endure it. He knew that one day he would have a bride that would be radiant. Because he gave his life for her. The church. The believing for the true child of God. It is important for us to remember this, that we may have to endure the chastening of the Lord, but praise God that we will never have to endure what Christ endured on the cross for us. That is our blessed hope. If you are convinced or unconvinced at this point, and you think to yourself, I don't need to confess any sins. I don't need to receive forgiveness. May God have mercy. There are sins that need to be forgiven. And maybe you've come this morning and you've kind of been listening and maybe your life has been lived without, you can't say I'm a true believer. This is, these are things that You know, to me, they just kind of go right by me. But hopefully God has been using his word in your life. That maybe it would bring you to confess your sins and to receive forgiveness. We see that David cried out in agony and he wept before God. And in the end, the Lord's miraculous chastening produced a miraculous ending in David's life. The child of God can praise the Lord when choosing faith in God. Remember that this is for the Christian, for the believer, for the child of God as David was. See, David had a choice here. And his choice that he had was that he could have pitied himself and he blamed others, or he could take all that he knew about the character of God that we have looked at, and he could exercise his faith in God. As the believers in Jesus Christ, we're thankful for the Holy Spirit. Because he brings back to mind the things that we need to know, the things that will encourage us, that will build us up. His word is given to us that we can read and we can recall. And we have access today to go directly to the Father, to pray to him because of what Jesus has done. 
Look at David's words, what he chooses here. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. First, he faithfully denounces evil workers. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. He separates himself from those who did evil. As we know, David had all sorts of people around him in his life. And in fact, if you read about early on in his life, you know, he's got a motley crew of people with him. He's got some guys who are conniving and will do evil. And one of the things that really kind of strikes me about this is that David here is just like, okay, (laughs) it is time to separate myself from all of this. I've confessed to the Lord. I understand who he is. And so as he says here, depart from me, all you evil workers. The Lord hears my weeping. You know, we don't have details, like I said, about David's situation, but we can understand what God wants us to do. God tells us not to be unequally yoked. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? After David's confession, David's first act of faith was to denounce all the evil workers in his life. Those who are going to give me bad advice, who are telling me that this is what we should be doing. No, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with that. Those who want to entice him Provoke him and get him to do something that is wrong. Nope, not going there. I know who my God is. And he is the one that I am going to appeal to. He is the one who will deliver me. Not that advice that I'm hearing from over there, all that noise that is coming at me. He rejects it. Only what is pure and what is right. He associates himself with those who are good. This is why it's important to come together in fellowship as a church. Because this is what we need. We need people who are in God's word, who are praying, who are believing in God to build us up. To help us to walk according to God's ways. Next, David chose faithfully to choose to believe in God. Just like the other patriarchs that are mentioned in uh, Hebrews 11, David uh, was announced as faithful and receiving promises. 
the beginning of, of the chapter, it says this in Hebrews eleven six. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He chose to exercise that faith of believing in God. That God will do what he said he will do. And then finally, he was faithfully hoping for the work of the Lord and those who do not believe. You know, I, I love this uh, phrase here that it has. In verse 10, he says, All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And when you read through it quickly, you think to yourself, Oh, so David's enemies are going to get what's coming to them. That's what it looks like at first. But if you look carefully at what it says here, he has just said that called on the name of the Lord who heard his weeping, heard his plea, accepted his prayer. He believed God for these things. And so look how it changes his thinking here. He says, all my enemies shall be ashamed. You know, when our sins are discovered, we become ashamed. And as David just walked through, he was greatly troubled because of his sin, as it became known. And this is the same thing that he's praying for here, and he's talking about his enemies, that they would be ashamed and greatly troubled by this. And then at the last line, he says, they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. I think there's a hope that David has here that is like, you know, Lord, you're at work here, not only in my life, but in the life of others. His praise comes before the Lord this way, where he is saying, you know, I, I'm going to give praise to God because of what he is doing. I'm going to finish with a few concluding thoughts here that I want to um, give to you this morning as a result of all of this. It has left me at least considering this. First of all, don't be content to find other solutions when you're facing the Lord's chastening in your life. Plead to God for mercy. I, I, I fall for this too sometimes. It's easy to find other solutions that are easy. But they're temporary. They don't last. It's like the child who, who tells a lie and instead of confessing the lie, covers it with another lie. It's temporary. It's a fix. But then they have to cover that with another lie later on. And then another lie. And all of a sudden, life becomes very complex. 
and it happens to adults. Don't be content to find other ways to get around what is going on. Plead to God for mercy. Know that you are facing the Lord's chastening. It's not a bad thing because remember, he loves you. Second, admit to the Lord your soul's condition. I think all too often we pray with the idea of, dear God, here's what I need today. Give me this. Give me that. Help me with this. And Lord, may we all have a good day today. And God already knows the condition of your soul. You know what's really sad, though, is that we don't know it. And sometimes, because of the fact that we want to be blind about the condition of our soul, things will become urgent. They will become intense. You'll be like David. You're going to flood your couch with tears. It's okay. Because you have a faithful God. You can tell him the condition of your soul. You can admit to him, this is where I'm at right now. God, I don't know what to do about it. Third, have you surrendered to sin? Or are you taking up the shield of faith? Ephesians 6 tells us this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, listen to this, in all circumstances, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And it goes on to say, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints. You see, when, when we walk through these sinful ordeals where things are painful and God is chastening us, when we come out the other side, these are the people that we become. We're suited up 
in all circumstances, taking the shield of faith so that it can extinguish all the darts of the evil one who is trying to destroy your faith, cause you to doubt, cause you to fall into sin. Take up the shield of faith. And then finally, do you need to be delivered from the wrath of God? There may be some that are here this morning that have never surrendered to the Lord. You may be sitting here going, I can't believe I'm sitting here listening to this or trying to ignore it. I appeal to you this morning and I ask you to consider the fact that he is a holy God. This is a penitential psalm that David wrote that basically says, Lord, sin is heavy, it is weighty. It destroys people's souls. But God, you still get all the praise. You still get all the glory. When we confess and we call you Lord over all of this, you are victorious. You are the God who deserves all praise and glory. Would you please bow your head? Father, we come before you after having looked at a weighty passage, one that perhaps we did not expect to have to hear today, but one that hopefully prepares us for understanding the fact that you are a God who is worthy of praise because you love your people. And those that you have called to yourself, Father, you are faithful. You treat us as sons and daughters, and yes, you do chastise us as needed, but Father, through all of it, it is because of your great love for us that we are sustained. We thank you that it was Jesus upon whom all of your wrath was poured out. We understand that we, we are saved from that as followers, as believers in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for those who have not yet confessed their sin, that have not yet given up their sin to you, who have not called upon the name of the Lord, that they would come to you and they would cry out to you, O oh Lord, my deliverer, save me. Father, we pray these things in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus Christ who loved us, who gave himself for us. It is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.